is week number two of misinterpret, talking about our biggest Bible blunders, and you see the, the gentleman there, and he's got his, you know, he looks all prim and proper, but the way he's reading his Bible is really interesting. He's got his eyes closed, or at least he's blindfolded, and he has his fingers crossed, you know, sort of superstition for good luck. And he's got his Bible actually upside down, if you notice, especially the kids. Maybe you can see that. And then he's just pointing to a, to a place in the Bible, hoping that he finds something that's good. So this really isn't a good way to read the Bible. And in the first week, we talked about nine ways to misread the Bible. Give you nine mistakes that you can make if you want, really want to misinterpret the Bible. Just follow my advice in those nine ways and you'll, you'll misinterpret the Bible all right. You'll make plenty of mistakes and you can listen to that online if you didn't catch it at our website, uh, cityreachbrossard.com. Go ahead, kids. You are dismissed. Let's give them a little hand and thank God that you don't have to take care of them for a half an hour. <laughs> Okay, and all your questions you may ask your leaders and they will give you all the answers, okay? So that was week one, and you can look it up online and listen to it online. I went through it quite quickly, but we'll go through actually three of them. We'll apply three of those blunders today. Um, and uh, where's my, my notes? Yeah. And so um, last week we talked about Mother's Day and we did a little detour and did Mother's Day from the perspective of Paul's a uh, little letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, and some advice he gave Timothy. And in particular, we looked at the influence of his grandmother and his mother on his life. And I saw a lot of uh, activity and discussion in the foyer after the service was over, if you go to the next slide, in particular about the two, uh, as we call them today, apps that you can download to whatever device you want, your iPhone, your Android phone, your, your laptop, your desktop, whatever you want. And these are the best online applications for getting into the Bible with, uh, for, your, for you as an adult or for your kids. Just point any browser to Bible.com or Bible.com slash kids. They are getting better and better, these applications. Now they're using video. Uh, the other day I saw, um, not the other day, it was more like a couple of months ago, I was doing a, a, a series on the Minor Prophets, and I saw how they broke down uh, one of the books of the Mi Minor Prophets in video form and explained the whole structure of the book, and I thought, good night, you used to have to pay hundreds of dollars to buy resources to figure all this stuff out, and now it's all free. And you can get it on these little phones. I mean, we literally have no excuses whatsoever, even if you have zero Bible experience, zero Bible knowledge, but you have one of these phones or you're, you've got a computer somewhere that's hooked up to the internet, you can begin to learn the Bible in a, in a way that is practical and that applies to your daily life. So those are the two websites I know people were asking, and you'll find everything that you need there. Uh, so today, we're back into misinterpret, and we're going to uh, talk about a passage of Scripture uh, that the research seems to say is the most misinterpreted passage in the Bible. Now, it's not like research is being done in a really scientific way, but the people who write books on the subject of misinterpreting the Scripture, they cite this one as the number one verse 
and it's in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. You probably know the verse off by heart. It's quoted so often in the culture today. Do not judge or you too will be judged from Matthew 7 and verse 1. This is our verse for today and arguably the most misinterpreted passage in the entire Bible. So I want to give you some observations about this um, and try and learn what the text really, really means, okay? So number one, for you to understand, we live in what we call a post-Christian culture, or some people use the term a post-modern culture. And in this culture, in case you haven't noticed already, it conflicts with a, a, a worldview that comes out of the Bible. Uh, what do I mean by this? So, so 30, 30, 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, this culture, North American culture, largely derived its values from the Judeo-Christian worldview. So, you know, people, people in general, so experience, religious view, law, ethics, morality, was in gen it was in general accepted the, that the Judeo-Christian ethic was what was prevailing. Okay, so people, people respected the church 30, 40, 50 years ago. They respected the clergy. Uh, they respected the Bible, and in general, the ethic in North American society was largely Judeo-Christian. All that is now gone. It is completely gone. Uh, we sometimes say in North America, you know, the United States, they say they're a Christian nation. Canada, sometimes we say we're a Christian nation. We are not. We are, a not, we are not a Christian nation in the way that we, wor we our worldview is not Christian. Uh, the Americans, their worldview is not Christian. There may be many, many churches in the United States and Canada, but the worldview of the culture is no longer Christian. It is post-Christian or sometimes called post-modern. And what this means is, in terms of truth, in terms of ethics, in terms of morality, in terms of personal experience, in terms of religion, anything that a person believes to be true is true. So it's their view. Their view should be respected. Even if their view contradicts your view, it doesn't matter. Both are equally true. Both are equally valid. Both are equally on the same ethic in terms of uh, moral value. They're the same. And we do not have the right in a post-Christian society to judge another person's experience, religion, view, ethic, moral. We don't have that anymore. So nowadays, you know, you, we, we see this reflected in the culture. People don't, they don't respect the, the church anymore. They don't respect religion anymore. They, they don't believe that there's a such thing as a universal right and wrong, a universal absolute. So perhaps the only absolute that exists today in North American culture is that there is no such thing as a moral absolute. It's a bit of a contradiction. So nowadays, if you say such and such is right and such and such is wrong in a, in a moral sense and in, a universe, in an absolute sense, boy, that's a statement that you're going to be criticized for. So we live in a post-Christian, in a post-modern culture. The way that you communicate the gospel to somebody, you must realize that you're dealing with a post-Christian culture. You're not dealing with a Christian culture anymore. 
That's why any tool that you can use that the culture uses to try and get the gospel to them is a very, very valuable tool. Uh, if Paul were alive today, uh, he would be the biggest user of social media because he could proliferate the thing with the gospel. Uh, so we, but we live today in a post-Christian, post-modern culture. So things like saying uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that humanity is born with, uh, with their back up against God and that even from, even from a young age, you can see that there is a bent in human nature, even in the lives of children, away from God. There's something in us like a time bomb ticking that erodes our morality and turns us against God. This is the teaching, this is the doctrine of original sin. And we've inherited this from our first parents, Adam and Eve, this bent toward transgression. To say that in a post-Christian culture is very offensive. In a post-Christian culture, the belief is, well, we're born basically good. We may lose our way along the way, but we certainly aren't born with a sinful trait. This is a very, very frowned upon idea today. The idea that the exclusive way to salvation is through Jesus and his death on the cross. Jesus says something like, uh, for example, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a very offensive statement in a post-Christian culture. Do you follow what I'm saying? And some of you, you've experienced this as you've tried to share your faith with your friends. So we need to understand that first and foremost when we look at this verse in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. And so what the culture does when they see something like this sentence that Jesus said, you know, do not judge or you too will be judged. They say, you see, do not judge. This is the person's lifestyle. This is the person's views. This is the person's religion. These are their choices. Do not judge. Even Jesus said it or you too will be judged. Aha. And so the culture today looks at this passage and says, you see, and they look at, at Christians and they say, you Christians, you should do what your Jesus said. He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, there's a few problems with looking at this text this way. Let me give you three of them quickly. And we looked at these in the first week. Number one, we're going to the text. If you go to the next slide, if you look at the text that way, and I've, and I've met Christians who look at it that way, and we'll talk about that in a moment. If you look at it that way, the first thing you're doing is you're going to the text with a presupposition. So the culture says every view is equal, every moral experience, ethic, whatever, religion, it's all equal. There's no absolutes anymore, so do not judge. So they have that view. We have that view sometimes. And then we go to the scripture with it, and we see a sentence that Jesus says, and we say, aha, there, I now can justify my presupposition, and now I have God on my side. But you can't do this. When you go to the Bible, when you read the Bible, you do not go with your own presuppositions. You go with the idea that God is now going to suppose something to me. And you respect the Bible enough to say, I'm not going to impose what I think on the scripture. I'm going to let God speak to me. 
and he will make suppositions to me, and I have to evaluate them. But I cannot bring my own and overlay them on the text, and now I have God on my side. I have Jesus on my side, and now I can run around and tell people, do not judge, do not judge. Do you, do you understand that? Never approach the scripture with a presupposition. Number two, th to, to interpret it this way is to disrespect the genre of literature that we're talking about. So the, the gospel of Matthew um, is what we call a synoptic uh, gospel. It's a fancy term. All it means is you're reading a synopsis there. So the author who, who claims to be Matthew, he's writing a, a, a synopsis of the life of Jesus. He's telling us this is who Jesus was. This is what he, where he came from. This is what he said. This is what he did. This is how people around him reacted. It's a synopsis. So this is not a book of Proverbs. You, you can't read the Gospel of Matthew the way you read Proverbs. You can go to a, a, the book of Proverbs in the Bible, and Proverbs are written as these little one-line sentences that stand alone. So you can take a proverb and you can you can take it right out of the out of the chapter and you can you can use that proverb because it's written that way it's a standalone sentence. I mean we put chapters and verses in Bibles today they weren't written that way. You have this huge huge list of proverbs and even in one that's in the same chapter that we can look at in our modern Bibles we can just take that sentence and airlift it and we can do that because that's the style of the literature that it is. It's a book of proverbs. But the Gospels are not that way, and Matthew is not that way, and in fact, when we read Matthew, it's a, it's a story. It's 28 chapters long of the life of Jesus, so we've got to respect the fact that the author is writing this as, as a, a, a synoptic piece. It's a, it's a story. And number three, uh, to interpret it the way that we typically interpret it is to totally ignore the context. So if you look at the context of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, maybe you have it open uh, in a Bible, electronic Bible, or it's in your lap. I have, a, I have an old-fashioned Bible with wide margins here, and Jesus, when he speaks, they try and put it in red. You know, so I have that kind of Bible. It doesn't really matter which kind you have. And you have this sentence, do not judge or you too will be judged. Well, it's part of a long sermon, and we call this the Sermon on the... Mount. So, so Jesus is uh, on the Mount of Olives, presumably, and he's, he's in a long sermon. This is a very, very long sermon that he's given uh, here. And pretty well in the center of it, you have this sentence, do not judge or you too will be judged. Well, look at the context. I mean, the way we interpret it today is, ah, we can't say anything. Don't judge anything. We're not allowed to. Well, look at the context. What does he say? For in the same way you judge others, verse 2, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take a speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your eye? You hypocrite, sounds very judgmental, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's the verses that come after. What else comes after? Look at this one. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Wow. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Man, that's very judgmental sounding. 
uh, you continue and you start reading the rest of this chapter, you know, something like verse uh, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, very judgmental. But small and narrow is the gate that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets, very judgmental. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So you look at this, you say, whoa, uh, there's, the context seems to be speaking against the way that we typically interpret the text. But if we come to it with a presupposition, we ignore the genre and the context, well, we can make it say whatever we want it to say. So what does the text really mean, and how do we wrestle with it today in the 21st century post-Christian culture, as, it, as, as we say it? So next slide, some reality checks for us, okay? We judge all the time. We are always judging, and I put in brackets there, to judge synonymous with this, we discern, we distinguish, we discriminate. And that's usually used as a bad word today, but it just means to discern. We've, we've made it a negative term today. The fact is that we do this all the time. Life, it's a part of life. And those of you who are parents in particular, you know this is true because you're trying to teach your children to judge. You're trying to teach them about right and wrong. And by nature, if they have a moral framework, and all of us do, all of us judge all the time. We're constantly judging. We're constantly making decisions on what we should or should not do. We're constantly evaluating what we think is right and what we think is wrong. We're constantly doing something or not doing something. And that's because we're about the practice there of discerning, distinguishing, and discriminating. And we do this all the time. And we need to start to admit the fact that judgment is a part of life. You can't operate in this world in any kind of sense without judging on a consistent basis. So we have a moral framework. Every single one of us does. Even people who say, no, I have no moral framework. I have no sense of morality. I have no sense of right and wrong. I'm a total hedonist. I live for pleasure. Everything goes. Anything goes. Even people who say that have a moral framework. Let me give you an experiment that you can use to, to, to prove this with such a person. Go and steal something from that person. If you work with them and they say, oh, I have no moral framework, I'm anti-Christian, I'm all this. Okay, well, go and steal something for them, uh, from them. You're going to see their moral framework pretty fast, right? Because they're going to say, you stole something from me, that's wrong. Really? Who says it's wrong? I thought you have no moral framework. If you really want to get bold, go and give them a little slap in the face. They're going to say, why did you hit me? That's wrong. Well, why is it wrong if you have no moral framework? We all have a sense. It's hardwired into us of right and wrong. We all have that. And if we have that, then we by default judge all the time based on that moral framework. You can even see it in biology. I don't care if you're, the, you're a staunch Darwinian evolutionist and you reject the Bible, you reject the creation account, you reject the idea that we're a special creation of God. Okay, go that route. 
Do you know how discriminatory that root is? You're talking about a process of mutation, natural selection, and death that kills off a species because it is not selected. This is very discriminatory. It means that you have a death process which leads to what we have today. That is extremely discriminatory. Uh, if, if, if you're a creationist and you're, you know, oh, I believe the Bible, I believe that God created the world, and, and you have that as your worldview, you're also discriminatory. Because biology, by nature, wherever you think we came from, is discriminatory. And I've said this before. Uh, for instance, there are men and women in this room, and whether we like it or not, whether we think it's unfair or not, there are things that only men can do, and there are things that only women can do. No matter how much we want to change that picture, so no matter how much I want to know what it is like to carry a child to term and deliver a child, I will never have the experience. Nature has discriminated against me. And no matter how much you want to, ladies, you, you want to know what the gender of your child will be before you have the child and you want to find a way to do that, you will never be able to do that. Because in the, if you do it the natural way, guess who's deciding the gender of your child? The male is, the father of your child. And they don't even do that voluntarily. It all depends on, you know, the whole chromosomal makeup there. So no matter how you slice it, you're dealing in discrimination and you're dealing in judgment. You're dealing in discernment even if you look at biology. Now, a word needs to be said here about the big debate of the day. So uh, those of you who are out there in the marketplace or in your schools or whatever, if people know that you're a Christian and you're starting to, to be a parent as a Christian, you know, you're, you're, you show that you're a Christian to someone, it's, it's becoming a parent, no doubt you have run into the argument and the passionate debate today about the whole LGBTQ2+, I think they call it that now. The name seems to always be changing. And no doubt you have had questions and you've had to wrestle with this because the person who you're sharing your faith with is going to say, what do you think, Mr. Christian, what do you think, Mrs. Christian, of gay people? Do you hate them? Do you love them? Is it right? Is it wrong? What do you think of same-sex marriage? What do you think of LGBTQ2+. And this is the raging debate of the day when people try to share their faith. So a word needs to be said about this. Now, to be sure, and listen, listen closely to what I'm saying because I don't want to be misquoted here, which happens often in this, in this whole discussion. To be sure, to discriminate against a person. And to say to a person, because they may be LGBTQ2+, 
you, I'm not going to hire you for this job, or you're somehow less than everybody else because you are in that whole, that whole community, and I lump them together just for argument's sake. You're in the LGBTQ2 plus community, so therefore you will not have this, you will not have this, and I will discriminate against you as a result. You want to get the job in this place here, and so I'm not going to give it to you because you're this lifestyle. Well, to be sure, you're likely going to end up in a courtroom if you, if you do that these days. You know, there's a case that just went to the Supreme Court, I think, in the United States. Have you heard of this, of the baker who refused to bake the cake for the same gender couple? Have you heard of this story? It went right to the Supreme Court, and as far as I know, the fellow lost. And, he, you know, because he refused to bake the cake for them, he ran a bakery and because of their lifestyle, he said, no, I'm not baking the cake for you. The Supreme Court said, you know, you're wrong. You, you, you shouldn't have done that. Okay, so th to be sure, uh, we, we are as a culture and sometimes even as Christians being discriminatory in a negative sense toward this whole LGBTQ2 plus crowd. On the other hand, uh, they, that crowd has, in my view, rather brilliantly although mistakenly, but brilliantly brought about this massive shift in culture by using uh, uh, an argument, and that is the argument of discrimination. So here's how it goes. Um, you're, you're, when you discriminate against a person for the color of their skin, and this is, has been a historic thing and still is something that takes place in society. It's very, very prevalent. It's happening all the time. And when you say, well, because you're not, and usually it's white, uh, so because a person is not a Caucasian, we will treat them this way, we will refuse them this, we will refuse them that, they'll have to sit at the back of the bus. And so that's an obvious discrimination, that's a violation of a person's civil rights because you're talking about the color of their skin. This is the way, this is their DNA, this is the color of their skin. And when you say that one color of skin is superior to another color of skin, well, that is a very, very sinful form of discrimination. Do, do you follow? But when you say, well, we're a same-gender couple, and we want the, the ability to be legally married in this country, and you're refusing us the ability to be legally married in this country, you are therefore discriminating against our civil rights because of our gender. So in the same way that you discriminated against someone's civil rights because of the color of their skin, now you're doing it again, but you're just doing it because of their gender. You see, that's discrimination, and everybody bought it and said, okay, let's legalize all this. And so it's legal in the U.S., it's legal in Canada, it's a, it's a brilliant argument, but it's not the same thing when you really think about it. It's apples and oranges. So listen, a person may have predispositions towards same-sex attraction and, and all of that and LGBTQ2+. A person may say, well, I'm born that way. I have this predisposition and this is the way that I am. Or they say, well, this is the way that God made me. And there, there's an argument that they make along those lines. But ultimately, it's a decision of the will, to, to be frank, and the kids are all gone from the room, it's a, it's a decision of the will. Who you get into bed with is a decision of the will. 
And so you can have your arguments about predisposition and I'm born this way, but your choice is made in who you want to be married with. This is a decision of the will. It's not a decision of DNA. And so you have a behavior that we say, well, this is now becoming a civil right. And what will happen is we're going to start to justify all kinds of behavior with civil rights. And everybody who wants to have their way, they'll use the civil rights as an issue and cry discrimination, discrimination. So do, do you understand the difference? So there is a positive kind of discrimination that we actually exercise every single day. We discern, we distinguish, we discriminate all the time. And then there's a negative kind of discrimination, and we should know the difference. Uh, and we should be able to explain our position to this whole community. That's the debate of the day. A little bit of an aside, but as soon as you say, judge not lest you be judged, that is what people are going to bring up. Um, number four, we don't judge, in quotes. This is a reflection of a theology. So when a Christian even says, I don't judge, I don't judge anyone's lifestyle. I don't judge anyone's religious view. I don't judge anyone's choices. I leave that up to God. This is a reflection of theology. When people who are not even Christians say, I don't judge, I don't judge, really, if you get underneath the surface, there's a view of God that they have there. And there's a theology that that bears fruit, and the fruit of it is the interpretation of this passage. We don't judge, we don't judge. What do I mean by this? So with the, the postmodern crowd and many Christians, we love the idea, God is love, God is compassionate, God is gracious, God is merciful. No one's going to debate you on that. No, none of your workmates are going to argue with you when you say God is love. They're not going to say, oh, that's terrible, God is love. That's terrible that God is gracious. That's terrible that God is compassionate. That's terrible that God is merciful. They're going to have no issue with your God when you say that. Uh, and so what happens is we can recreate God and we can recreate Jesus as this sort of, he, he loves everyone. He loves everything. He accepts everyone and everything. He's all compassionate. He's all gracious. He's all merciful. He's lowly. He's meek. He's mild. He's never controversial. He never says no. He doesn't have any boundaries. And this is the way that Jesus is. And so this is the way that Christians, therefore, should be. And some Christians say, this is the way that I should be. So never say no, never have boundaries, accept everything, every, everyone, all behaviors okay, compassion, mercy, grace, love. The problem with this view is it ignores the way that God is revealed in Scripture, doesn't it? You, you can't have true love, you can't have true compassion, you can't have true grace, you can't have true mercy without what? Justice. Without what? Morals. Without what? Ethics. You, you have to have that. If you don't have that, then you don't have true love, true grace, true mercy, true compassion. They make no sense. And those of you, again, who are parents, you know that. You know that you have to approach your child with grace, but you also know you have to <laughs> approach your child with truth. And the two of them have to work in sync if you're going to raise your child to be, you know, all that, that, that they can be in this world. So uh, love and justice don't collide 
they work together, you see. And when we recreate God and when we recreate Jesus as this, well, he accepts everything, everyone. He never says no. He never judges. It's to misread the Gospels. When you look into the gospel story and you look at Jesus, my goodness, the things that he says, even in this chapter, are incredibly direct, incredibly harsh, incredibly, in our view, judgmental. Even if you look at the reaction of people in the gospel accounts and you see how they reacted to Jesus, my goodness, he was very controversial. He was a polarizing figure. There were people who you either loved him or you loathed him. There were people who hated him so much they wanted him dead. I mean, the things that Jesus had to say, the things that he did by nature have an edge to them and a controversy to them and a sense of judgment about them. This is the way that God is presented in the Gospels. He by nature, by nature, can be quite offensive to people. I often say that if Jesus were the pastor of most of our churches, most of our churches could not handle Jesus. And most of our churches could not handle Paul. They would say he's too harsh, he's too judgmental, he's too direct, he's not compassionate enough. And by the way, he spends time with people who are unholy. He spends time with people who are sinful. He spends time with people who are irreligious. So not only is he too harsh, too direct, too controversial, he's also not very holy by our standards. I don't think Jesus would last very long in many of our churches, and I don't think Paul would either. So when you, again, when you read the Gospels and when you read the Bible, you're not dealing with this God who has no backbone. Uh, a case in point, you know, Jesus dealing with a woman who was caught in adultery and they all went to stone her. And you remember the story and Jesus bends down and he writes something in the sand and one by one, they all drop their stones. They walk away. The woman is left. He says, does no one is no one's left to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. There you see grace and justice at the same time. He's not compromising. He's not saying your sin is okay. He's saying, go and sin no more. You have been forgiven. You have received grace. Now live a righteous life. You see? So these things run in sync. They don't contradict each other. They don't slam up against each other. But when we say, and mistakenly so, oh, I don't judge, I don't judge, I don't judge. Number one, you do judge if you're being honest. And number two, you're actually reflecting a theology of Jesus that may not be the one that's in the scripture. Number five, what is Jesus really saying? He's saying don't judge in a hypocritical, note the word, fashion. This is the meaning of the text. And it's clear when you look at verses three to five. So he says, look, with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck to use a, um, uh, an illustration uh, out of it, the, the, his own world and their own world? Why do you look at the speck of dust? He's a carpenter in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank 
you imagine someone with a plank in their eye, okay, he's using hyperbole. You pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? You've got this problem in your life, and let me fix it for you. How can you do that, Jesus says, when you've got one that's so much bigger in your own eye? It's like you have a plank in your eye. He says, you hypocrite. He's very judgmental. You hypocrite, which means an actor. The word meant an actor back then. And you had these people in the Greco-Roman world and they would walk around in the public square and they would perform these little, these little acts and they put these masks on and take these masks off. He's saying you're like them. You're a hypocrite. You're an actor. You need to take the plank out of your eye first. Then you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying don't judge in a hypocritical fashion. How does this play itself out today? So many times we can be critical, we can be judgmental, we can be, we can be exercising what we think is discernment and, and a righteous form of discrimination against another person, another person's behavior. You've got this speck in your eye, sir, ma'am, you're this way, you're this way, you're this way, and yet we're guilty of the very same thing. And it often happens in church circles, the way that I've seen it, is in preaching. And people preach hard against a particular sin. And then you find out later they're involved in the very same sin. And they get caught in the very, very same thing. Why? Because they did not do what Jesus said. They did not take the plank out of their own eye. I'm thinking of, a, of an example from the last four or five years. I remember when people came up to me, when this man, this very respected preacher in the U.S., a man who founded a church out of nothing, and it went to 10, 15,000 people, a man who was uh, uh, regarded as a very respected leader, not only in the church crowd, but in the non-church crowd in the United States and even a little bit around the world. He's a great writer, an amazing preacher. And I remember when the news story started to break about his, his deviant behavior in the whole area of sexual immorality. And people came to me and they said, do you think it's true? Do you think it's true? And I said to all of them, I said, not only is that true, you're going to see a whole lot more is going to be true. Because it, it almost always is the case. And sure enough, all of this mess about this man's life came right out into the public square, embarrassing, horrible stuff. It ruined his ministry, ruined his life. He has since uh, come back a little bit, and I think pastoring another church. Uh, the amazing thing about this man's story is that his wife actually stayed with him through all of this horrible mess. She stayed with him and actually wrote a book about it uh, called Why I Stayed. And she showed this man grace, and she showed this man mercy, and she, she decided I'm going to stay in there and, and honor my, my marriage vows and all of this. It's an amazing story. But it's an illustration. We need to be very careful what we're criticizing and what we're judging because we may have the plank in our eye. And we need to be very careful. It's not saying don't judge, but don't judge in a hypocritical fashion. Paul says to the Romans, you say don't steal. Do you steal? You say don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? So when you judge, be careful because if you've got the plank in your own eye, the first thing you do Look after yourself, examine yourself, then you can see clearly and you can remove the speck in your brother's eye. So he's not saying 
don't judge at all. He's saying don't judge in a hypocritical fashion. And finally, number six, Jesus will judge. And in fact, Jesus judges all the time. And God judges all the time. But ultimately, there will be a future judgment that we see clearly portrayed in Scripture. Jesus will judge, and the Scripture demands that you and I make a decision about him. Yesterday, uh, we all saw in the news yet another mass shooting in the United States in Santa Fe, Texas, in a high school. We have, I think it's 10 people who lost their lives, including one teacher in the school. There's a, a shooter that's been apprehended. There are people in the hospital. And yet again, we see this thing happen in the United States, our neighbors to the south, and our hearts sinks. Every time we see one of these news stories, we say, again? Uh, yesterday, Max Lucado, who's a, an excellent writer, uh, lives in the U.S., very, very respected writer. He wrote an article, and uh, Fox News carried the article, and he talks about the shooting, uh, and he asks the question, when will it end? When will this evil end? And he talks about how God is a judge, and that Jesus is a judge, and that judgment is going to come, and God is going to deal with evil once and for all. And he talks essentially about the second coming. And he quotes from, uh, from the psalm here, and he says this, When you wonder if wickedness will go unpunished, or injustices will go unaddressed, let this promise gratify your desire for justice. God will have the final word. And he quotes from Psalm 7 and 11, which says this in this particular translation, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. He does not accept everything and every behavior. When he sees wickedness, he gets angry. There's a desire that God has to bring about ultimate justice. And you and I have that same desire. You and I are created in his image. And so Lucado writes this article to try and encourage people saying, when is this evil going to end? And he says, and he quotes from Matthew 25, talking about the, the, the end times judgment and the sheep and the goats. And he quotes from Acts chapter 17, God has set a day when he will judge this world through the man he has appointed, and that is Jesus. So God will judge, Jesus will judge, and in fact, he judges every day. Uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed even today. And how is it being revealed? It says God gave them over to such and such behavior, such and such kind of thoughts, such and such kind of lifestyle. He says, you want it? I remove my hand of protection from you. If you want it, go and take it. And this is the way that God is judging today. He lets people go. He lets people have their decision. He lets people have their choice. He lets people have the full experience, if you will, of sin. That's a terrifying place to be when you know that God has removed his restraint. This is what Paul says is the wrath of God in this time. But there is a time coming, friends, when Jesus will judge this world on a global, global scale. And he will do away with evil once and for all. And uh, a credit to Max Lucado, who had the courage to write this, and it got into, uh, as an opinion column, 
uh, in Fox News. You can see it on their website if you want to. Uh, but not only is Jesus a judge, and not only will he judge, but Scripture demands that you and I make a decision about him. And if you want to say it this way, Scripture demands that we judge him. Scripture demands that we decide, is Jesus who he claims to be or not? The great writer C.S. Lewis put it this way in an argument. He said, Jesus is either a liar, and if he's a liar, then he is the most diabolical of liars. Because if you look at what he said, if he is lying, then that would be like the height of deception. Or Jesus is a lunatic. So he's saying all of these things and he's completely out of his mind. Or Jesus is who he says he is, the Lord of all. It's called the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument. Because Jesus has not left us kind of swinging uh, half on the fence and half not on the fence. You've got to make a decision as to who he is. Either you're going to say, yes, he is the Lord of all. Or no, he's not. And if he's not, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. It's one of the two. But you can't give to Jesus this idea, well, he's just a great sage. He's just a great rabbi. He's just a great teacher. He just had a lot of good things to say. No, he did not. He made claims about being the, the actual son of God. He made claims related to salvation that are of an exclusive nature. And you either are going to reject those claims or you're going to accept them one or the other. But you can't be in the middle. He demands that you make a decision even about him. So do not judge or you will be judged. I hope you understand the right way of looking at this and the wrong way of looking at this.